This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today the author of a fascinating book just out from NYU Press titled Keeping Family Secrets, Shame and Silence in Memoirs from the 1950s. The book investigates how families keep secrets from each other, from outsiders, um, why they do so, what the differences are between different types of secrets um, and what sort of impact that they have looking at how people actually felt about this from their own memoirs um, examining uh, the 1950s and 1960s. It's a fascinating book that really goes deep into how families interact, how people process all of those sorts of things. Um, So I'm very pleased to have the author with us today, Dr. Margaret Nelson. Thank you so much for being with us. And thanks for inviting me to discuss my book. Before we begin that discussion, though, would you mind giving us a bit of an introduction of you and why you decided to write this? Um, I'm a retired professor of sociology, and for many years I taught and wrote about family from a variety of different perspectives. I'd written about economic influences on families, and I'd written about different ways of creating kinship, and I actually had written about um, an African-American woman who had cared for my family when I was a little girl. And as I thought about what I wanted to consider next, I realized that very few people, in fact, had written about family secrets. Psychologists had written about family secrets, and some historians had written about family secrets, but sociologists really hadn't considered a family secrets. And I felt that that was a very big gap in the sociological literature. At the same time, um, I really love reading memoirs. And it occurred to me that, and this was before COVID actually, um, before we had moved our lives onto Zoom, But it occurred to me that I could probably study family secrets by reading memoirs. And since I had recently retired and had no money for travel, um, I thought, hmm, I could read memoirs about family secrets and go on from there. So that's what I did. Makes sense. Very clever methodology given um, those pragmatic pieces of it and always really useful to understand kind of both the intellectual and the practical elements that go into a book. 
now that we have an understanding of what brought you to this, um, I think we should probably start right at the beginning. What do you mean by family secrets? Well, I use a pretty tight definition of a family secret, um, which is, I think that there's lots of things that people don't like to share um, on TikTok or Instagram or any social media. That is, you probably don't want to tell people that you had a fight with your partner or that you're competitive with a sibling or that um, the dog made a mess in the living room. Um, There's lots of things we might not advertise ourselves about ourselves, but I define family secrets a little bit differently. That is information that people um, choose to conceal either from each other within a family or from outsiders outside of the family, because to share that information would risk illicit eliciting not only embarrassment or minor discomfort, but would also cause profound shame and on some occasions, material hardship or even danger. So I define family secrets as things that you don't tell, you don't, you maybe you don't tell your parents or you don't tell your siblings, you certainly don't tell outsiders because of the consequences of doing so. Got it. That's very helpful as a foundation for our discussion. Um, we mentioned it a little bit already, the timeline or the time period I, of the book. Um, this is, I think, really key for the thinking of what those consequences might be. Can you tell us a bit more about exactly what period you cover and how you decided this? Well, the period I cover is what I think of as the post-World War II period up through say, the 1960s, when people started opening up about what went on within families. The the post-World War II period was, at least in the United States, was a very secretive period, a time when what a family was supposed to be like, at least a white family was supposed to be like, was pretty narrowly defined. And Therefore, if your family or you deviated from the expectations, um, you might want to keep that secret. So I had, it took me some time to narrow in, but as I was reading all these various memoirs, I realized, excuse me, I realized that there was, they were clustering or many were clustering in the 1950s, about the 19, late 1940s and the 1950s. And of course, not obviously, but that was my era. That was when I was growing up as well. So it felt comfortable in a way to be writing about a time period that I had lived through. Um, one of my brothers, when he started reading the book and was reading about families keeping secrets said to me, well, this sounds just like our family. Not necessarily that we had those secrets in our family, but that there was a kind of don't ask about private matters. So the other thing I I think I should add is that um, I was more interested in secrets that were secret at that time, but were no, are no longer secrets than I was in secrets that I think still would remain secrets. So I didn't write about um, 
children who were being abused in the household or parents who were committing adultery. Um, I think those would still be considered secrets, but um, they weren't unique to the post-World War II period. Hmm. That's a helpful clarification. Can you take us through then which types of secrets you do discuss in the book and uh, perhaps a bit more about how you decided on these six? Well, I, I discussed two sets of secrets. One set is things that children knew when they were children, but kept from their parents or outsiders. So I look at four secrets um, that were common at that time. One was having an institutionalized sibling. Um, this was often uh, often in the 1940s and 50s, if a child was born with severe mental or physical disabilities, they were taken out of the household, out of the family and put in an institution. So I was interested in how children in a family regarded that um, as a secret that often wasn't told to other people outside of the family and certainly often was not even discussed within the family. Another secret I looked at um, in the same category was boys who had experienced same-sex sexual attractions, something that they often kept secret from their parents and certainly from outsiders given attitudes towards homosexuality at that time. A third was girls who became pregnant when they were teenagers or unmarried. Um, Again, something certainly kept from outsiders and for as long as it was possible, and it wasn't possible forever, um, girls would try to keep from their parents. And then the fourth was having parents who were communist or suspected of being communist. Um, This is a secret that would be known within the household, but certainly would be kept from other people outside of a very narrow group of people who might know about that. So those were four secrets that children knew um, as children, but had to either keep from other people in the family or from outsiders. I looked also at two secrets that children discovered only when they grew up and were adults. One was that they were not conceived in the parental relationship. And that could have been for a number of different reasons. They could have been one parent had an extramarital affair or they were adopted or they were a child of sperm donation. Um, And often they did not, children did not know this until they were adults and discovered in some way And another secret that was kept from children that they discovered later was that one or or both of their parents were Jewish. Um, And they didn't discover this until they were adults. Now, I think there were other secrets in the 1950s that people might have kept. Um, One, I think, was that a parent or both parents had been previously married and were divorced. But I could not find enough memoirs about those secrets to write about them, these the six that I mentioned, I could find a sufficient number of memoirs to start working with them and to write about them. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Again, the combination of interest and pragmatism coming through. 
I'd love to ask I'm you. Very, I'm a very pragmatic person. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's very, it makes books actually happen, right? Goes from the idea to the page. Um, so now that we've laid out uh, what time period we're talking about, uh, the methodology of memoirs and the six kinds of secrets, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about uh, those secrets in particular. The first one, I'm, I'm going in a slightly random order, I suppose. You mentioned in the discussion um, about same-sex attraction, that it was specifically boys and young men um, that you examined. Did you find any differences in these discussions of secret homosexuality between memoirs written by men versus women that discuss this? Well, the problem that I faced was I really could not find memoirs written by women about having had same-sex attractions as girls. And I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is, I think that if girls had that kind of attraction, they may not have recognized it as being deviant in any way. Girls are allowed to sleep in bed with a good friend. They're allowed to hold hands with good friends. They're allowed to have crushes on teachers and older girls without thinking of it necessarily as being homosexuality or lesbianism or even sexual. So I could not find um, girls who had been aware um, as children, women who had been aware that as children, they had strong sexual attractions towards members of their same sex or gender. However, we wanna talk about it. The men on the other hand, were quite aware from very early age that they had these attractions and that at that time they were defined as being deviant and even dangerous. So I quite simply could not find um, the same kind of experiences among girls that I did among boys or men. Hmm. That's fascinating as a finding, um, and those reasons are quite intriguing. If I, if I might ask a follow-up on that point before we move on. Sure. In terms of the discussions within the memoirs written by men, were those discussions relatively similar in terms of kind of the fear and the secret nature of it? Or was there variation within that experience as well? They were quite similar. Almost all the men wrote about having been aware at a quite young age that they had these same-sex attractions. Many of the men talked about exploring those attractions um, and being caught by a parent um, experimenting in, in a bedroom with a friend and the horror of their parents. And many of the men wrote about ha knowing that members of their family suspected this of them and um, were trying to and not necessarily beat it out of them, but were appalled by these ideas. So there was a kind of narrative arc that was common to um, a lot of the memoirs of growing up with same-sex attractions about being aware that their parents knew, but nobody would talk about it. And of course, the fact that nobody would talk about it was part of what was so painful to these boys. There they were, they had these attractions, but nobody would um, discuss it with them. Mm. 
And unfortunately, that's not something that changed um, really at all during the time period that you examine. And yet, one of the other types of secrets you discuss, that of unwed girls having babies, um, does seem to be a little bit more malleable um, in terms of how people reacted, how people discussed it, particularly if race was involved, if um, psychology was involved, if morality was involved. Can you talk us through these variations? Well, I'm not sure that I would say that um, the attitudes changed uh, in the period I was writing about. I think throughout the 19, late 1940s and 1950s, the um, attitudes of, about white girls, especially white middle class girls having babies out of wedlock, remained pretty much the same. What was different was that um, the condemnation of white girls was very much tied into the fact that white babies were a, <laughs> were very much in demand for people who wanted to adopt children. And so during that period, um, white girls were coerced into giving up their babies. They were declared to be unfit. They were declared to be psychologically damaged. They were declared to be violating norms of um, proper femininity. And their babies were pretty much taken from them. Um, African-American girls were not perceived in the same way, in part because for a couple of reasons. One reason was that nobody wanted African-American babies, so they didn't have to give them up. Another reason was the norm of femininity for white girls did not apply to African or white girls and women did not and could not apply to African-American girls and women, at least in the United States, because they could not live by the same strictures. African-American women were always far more likely to be working outside the home. They were working for other people. They could not follow the same norms of domesticity that had been available to white women. So I think that there are a number of reasons why there was a race difference in treatment of African-American girls and the treatment of white girls when they got pregnant out of wedlock. African-American girls, by and large, kept their babies and incorporated them into the household, the family in which they were living. Sometimes they might have been raised as a sibling. Sometimes they might have been um, acknowledged to be um, the child of of somebody who was um, not married within the family. But these girls did not give, were not compelled to give their children up for adoption in the same way that white girls do. And I, the issue about white babies really affected people across a pretty wide range of social class positions. Um, the white girls, if they were members of a more privileged family, might have had their families might have been able to make some kinds of other kinds of accommodations. But many of them went to these homes for unwed mothers, along with, say, white girls from working class families. Um, and those institutions housed 
a pretty broad range of social class positions. Hmm. I was interested to learn that from the book. That wasn't quite what I had thought going in. So um, thank you for clarifying the impact, both in terms of race and class. Staying within the realm of secrets um, that were, especially that one, known within the family, what kinds of secrets bound families together versus were known within the family, but kind of put people on opposite sides? I think almost every secret was divisive within their family. Um, I can talk about each one separately, but I think in general, say same-sex attraction on the part of boys, this divided boys from their parents and caused a kind of rift, especially if the boys knew their parents knew but wouldn't talk about it. Having an institutionalized sibling was often something very divisive in a family, partly because the children could not understand why these siblings were taken away if they had lived at home for some period of time. And there are a couple of examples um, in memoirs of children who had twins, one of and, and a twin was taken away. And family parents wouldn't explain why this child suddenly disappeared. So it was very much divisive, um, uh, uh, pa- children against parents in a way. Um, the only secret that seems to have bound people together was sometimes when a parent was, or parents were involved in, radical, communist, whatever term you want to use, activities, then then sometimes the family would unite against some kind of outside force that seemed to make life dangerous for the family, or even might have strong relationships with other families um, who were also communist. Those were sometimes binding or bounding, binding experiences within a family. But otherwise, I think keeping a secret from your parents or knowing your parents are keeping a secret from you was something that did not create warmth or love or accommodation or happiness within a family. I I think most often it created some kind of tension within the family and was in some ways divisive. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, Obviously, the fact that these memoirs are written by adults, um, so after they grew up knowing these secrets in some of the cases, um, there was obviously some amount of kind of processing and reckoning in creating the memoirs. If we think then about the secrets you mentioned where those discoveries are made in adulthood. What sorts of things did you find kind of thinking from this processing angle? What kinds of family secrets kept that disagreement going into adulthood, children being angry about the decisions their parents made versus perhaps maybe reflecting back or processing the information, being more understanding of them? You know, I've struggled with this some and kind of thinking about what I what I call the narrative arc of these memoirs, which is that by and large, people come to some kind of forgiveness of their parents. And that was very common, especially among the boys with same-sex attractions. You know, they were 
they were divided from their parents. Their parents were mad at them. They were mad at their parents. Ultimately, they seemed to, at the end, come to some kind of, I understand why my parents felt this way, and I'm kind of forgiving. I think that um, that arc of anger through processing to some kind of forgiveness, same thing was true um, with girls who'd been pregnant and were, had been forced to give up a baby for adoption. I think that that arc is manufactured by the need to write a memoir and the need to get your memoir published. That what might be attractive to an outside audience is that particular arc, that I come to forgiveness that I come to understanding, that I come to a mature reflection about my parents, um, and that the an ending of rage and anger might be less attractive as a memoir, might be less likely to sell, might be less forgive, less interesting or attractive to um, an editor or a publisher. So I think we really don't know about people who remained angry at their parents, who never forgave their parents for the secrets that had been kept from them. Because I think that um, that's just not what would sell to an audience. Hmm. Very important omission then in the archive to an extent, and an important yeah, one to think, highlight. Yeah, I think it really is. I think we just we just don't know. Interestingly, Sometimes it was the parents who remained angry. So especially um, children who wrote, they're adults when they write memoirs about discovering that a parent was African-American, which I look at briefly, though I don't, it's not my focus, or parent children who discovered that their parents were um, um, Jewish, the parents are angry, never forgive their children for exposing something that they had wanted kept secret. But the children forgive their parents for having kept it secret from them. So there's a kind of tension in there. Do children always forgive? I doubt very much that children always forgive. Um, but it's pretty clear that parents don't always forgive children for revealing secrets that they have wanted to keep secret. Hmm. Interesting. I found a number of things in the book that I perhaps was not expecting, either things that were more similar across different secrets or more different. Was there anything either in terms of similarities or differences that you found most surprising when you were looking at these different types of secrets and their impacts? One of the things I found most interesting was However, a number of secrets, having given, given up a child for adoption, finding out that a parent was had been Jewish or African-American, and finding um, that a child had been uh, reali realizing that a sibling had been institutionalized, um, is that people seek out the missing members of their family. So a number of the people who had institutionalized siblings as adults, they go and they reclaim that child they, who's now also an adult, but try to make contact with that person, sometimes bring them into their families, bring them into their household, that there, 
the absence um, of somebody is is caused to follow up and then somehow create a new bond. Um, the same was true about people who discovered that they were Jewish or that their parents were Jewish. They now want to find out about that side of their family. And they often go on, you know, get on Ancestry, go make trips, try to reclaim people who had been kept from them, family members who had been kept from them. And so, again, there's a search for the people who are missing. And the third search that was common was that almost everybody who had given up a baby for adoption tried to find out what had become of that child and to make contact. So in each of these cases, somebody who was missing from the family because somebody was something was being kept secret, they tried to reclaim those people and create relationships. Mm, yeah, it really was striking to read how consistently that happened. Yeah, yeah, it was it was quite consistent. I mean, people who found out that the father who raised them was not their vi- biological father would then go in search of their biological fathers. Often, of course, what people discover is that it's not genes that make a family; it's relationships and and intimacies and um, how you were, who raised you, and love made a family, but people did go on searches for the missing people, the missing pieces. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that surprise um, with us. It really was, as I said, quite striking reading the book. So um, in some ways, I'm kind of comforted that you also were like, huh, that's really interesting. And I think probably a lot of listeners, um, I mean, we know things like Ancestry.com are incredibly popular. So who knows? Uh, Maybe someone listening is like, oh, okay, maybe I've got a contact. Um, Before I let you go, though, I mean, there's really so many fascinating things about this book. Um, So before I ask my final question about kind of what might be next, is there anything further you'd like to tell us about this book and your experience writing it? Um, I'm not prepared for this question. That's fair. We can move on to the next one. I um, I loved working on this book. I will say that I loved reading the memoirs. Um, I loved finding the commonalities and occasional differences. I loved the process. Each of each chapter of this book is about one of these secrets, and each chapter begins with um, kind of the story of some one particular memoir. And I loved writing those stories, actually, and then and choosing which one I was going to write. Mm. Each chapter also gives a little bit of history about why this particular issue was secret, a kind of analysis of why people wouldn't have said they were Jewish or an analysis of why um, children were institutionalized from physical and mental disabilities at that time. And I liked I liked the process of working with a kind of broad history and providing enough information for my readers so they could understand the context of these secrets. And I, as a, just as one last point, I think I really liked reliving my own history. Um, not that there were these particular 
issues in my family, but they were all around. So going through high school, girls would disappear and you would hear, oh, they were going to live with a cousin for a year because they hadn't been happy. And then they'd come back and they would seem somehow altered. And then you could piece together that they'd gone off and had a child. So these were, and I knew also about families that had institutionalized a child. Um, So these were things that were part of my childhood and adolescence. And I liked learning my own history. Mm, That's absolutely fascinating. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Before I let you go, can I ask a final question of now that this book is available, it's out. um, Is there anything you might be working on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, after, um, let's see, after I wrote this book, um, I worked on another project with my sister that's coming out in December about a summer camp we attended. But I also... So that was immediately after this book. But then I am finishing up a project now that much more builds on this book, which is um, a project on how sociologists might use memoirs for their own teaching and scholarship. Um, I got interested in, obviously, in using memoirs and looking back at memoirs as a way to understand a particular issue, but more broadly, why memoirs are might be an important genre for sociologists to consider. So I've been working on that book, and um, it's it's in process. Let's. <laughs> no, fair enough. Uh, thank you for sharing. I think that will be helpful to a lot of people, um, as will, of course, the book we've been discussing again, titled. Keeping Family Secrets, Shame and Silence in Memoirs from the 1950s, published by NYU Press. Peggy, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Oh, and thank you for interviewing me. It was a wonderful list of questions, and I had fun thinking about them in advance and speaking them into a microphone in a (laughs) quiet room.